0: Today, we're beginning with Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and reading through chapter 11, verse 13. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are in the events of Jesus' ministry. Jesus and his disciples have left Jerusalem, and they're seen in undisclosed villages in Samaria. The evangelistic tour of the 70 that began in Luke chapter 10... It takes place probably in Samaritan cities, although that can't be substantiated for certain. Jesus is hosted in Bethany, which is two miles east of Jerusalem by Mary and Martha, and these events take place within the last six months of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion. In chapter 9 of Luke, verses 51 through 56, we see that the disciples, well, they want to take some action. Verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. In Luke's chronology, there's a definite and significant time lapse between the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 50, and here with verse 51, probably a lapse of several months. This is indicated with the wording of verse 51, which says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. As Jesus prepares to go to Jerusalem, an advance party checks out a Samaritan city for a stopover on the way. Knowing that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem, these village Samaritans carry on the Jewish-Samaritan feud, and it says they did not receive him. The disciples are disturbed, and they ask Jesus if he wants to call fire down from heaven on the village. They offer to do that. Jesus replies by saying, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, you got to admire the faith of James and John here. It was just a short time earlier when James and John, along with Peter, had been rebuked by Jesus for their lack of faith as they unsuccessfully attempted to cast out a demon. That was in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and earlier in luke chapter 9 it was at that time when jesus said in matthew chapter 17 verse 20 i say to you if you have faith as a mustard seed you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you apparently that left a huge impression on james and john here they volunteered to nuke the whole city with fire they proposed that they themselves called down from heaven though that act of faith might have been misdirected still you got to believe that they had taken the mustard seed faith lecture earlier very seriously incidentally they were referring to Elijah and his dealings with the soldiers in second kings chapter 1 now let me um, offer a note about the chronology of luke chapter 9 verses 57 through 62 These last six verses of Luke chapter 9 are not really included in the chronological presentation. Since they parallel with Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, the notes for these verses are going to be included with the Matthew 8 reading. It would appear that Matthew and Luke are citing the same occasion, but the placement of Matthew 8 a few months before seems to be the proper time frame for this event. And if you like, there's a link right there on the written notes of BibleTrack.org that take you back to the reading and to the notes on Matthew chapter 8. But let's read those verses anyway for continuity. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go first and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And again, the link for the notes on that section of scripture is right here on the written notes of BibleTrack.org. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, the seventy are sent out. Verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed seventy others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves." Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the way. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets, and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, "'Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name.' And he said to them, "'I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven.' In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Well, there was a previous mission trip that you may recall involving just the twelve apostles some time earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, uh, down through verse 15, and in Mark chapter 7, Luke chapter 9. At least several weeks, perhaps months have passed, and Jesus sends these newly appointed 70 disciples out on another special mission. We may at first quickly read through this passage and dismiss it as one that is not particularly doctrinally significant. However, this passage, with a few other supporting passages, has characterized the doctrinal position of churches around the world and through the centuries. Here's the question. Does this commission that Jesus gave here... Do these 70 directly apply to believers today? Now, before you answer, you may want to look closely at all of the specifications issued by Jesus regarding this particular evangelism campaign. Now, let's look closely at this sending. In verse 1, he tells them to go in teams of two. In verse 4, he says, don't carry any provisions. Again, in verse 4, he also says, greet no one along the way. Verses 6 and 7, he emphasizes that they are to bless the houses they enter. In verses 7 and 8, he instructs them to let their hearers provide for their necessities as a function of due wages. In verse 8, he says, heal the sick. And in verse 9, preach the kingdom of God message. As in other words, the message that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. In verses 10 through 15, now this one's interesting, If a city doesn't receive your message of the kingdom, symbolically wipe the dust from your feet while proclaiming a curse on that city. Chorazin, verse 13, doesn't exist today, by the way. Many believe that it's represented today by the ruins of Chorazin in Galilee. Bethsaida and Capernaum are located at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Since Jesus ministered extensively in that region, He points out that if the residents of Tyre and Sidon had been exposed to as much teaching as they, they would have repented. Tyre and Sidon had previously been destroyed by Alexander the Great. And then we see in verses 17 and 18, they were given power over demons. And finally, they were immune to the deadly effects of serpents and scorpions. We see that in verse 19. Now, churches that handle serpents as a matter of their regular corporate worship services do so because of this passage. It's worth noting the special provisions of this particular mission. If one insists on claiming the supernatural abilities given in this commission as applicable to normal everyday Christian living, then verse 4 must likewise be strictly adhered to as well as the gestures of verses 10 through 15. These verses explain a special mission for this platoon of 70 men. It's a dangerous precedent, as well as quite impractical, to take every command Jesus ever uttered to anyone and twist it to make portions of it applicable to every believer from then until now. Additionally, it's true that Jesus offered protection to the apostles and subsequent believers from the hazards of mission work. We see that again in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 20. However, these aren't encouraged to go looking for trouble. They're just told how to deal with it if the trouble comes. Of course, there's a lapse of time between the sending in verses 1 through 16 and the return of these witnesses in verses 17 to 24. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, Jesus addresses the issue of eternal life. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, Do this, and you will live." BUT HE, WANTING TO JUSTIFY HIMSELF, SAID TO JESUS, AND WHO IS MY NEIGHBOR? THEN JESUS ANSWERED AND SAID, A CERTAIN MAN WENT DOWN FROM JERUSALEM TO JERICHO AND FELL AMONG THIEVES, WHO stripped HIM OF HIS CLOTHING, WOUNDED HIM, AND DEPARTED, LEAVING HIM HALF DEAD. NOW BY CHANCE A CERTAIN PRIEST CAME DOWN THAT ROAD, AND WHEN HE SAW HIM, HE PASSED BY ON THE OTHER SIDE. LIKEWISE A LEVITE, WHEN HE HAD ARRIVED AT THE PLACE, CAME AND LOOKED AND PASSED BY ON THE OTHER SIDE. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now, most of the questions that we've seen addressed to Jesus up to this point have dealt with discipleship, but not this one. The lawyer specifically asked about the conditions of eternal life. Now, look closely and see the lack of sincerity in the question that the lawyer asked in verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Greek word therefore tempted is uh, ekperazo, which means to test thoroughly. Now, keep in mind, therefore, that the question is not really a personal inquiry but it's an attempt to cause Jesus to make a verbal misstep that could lead to an early trial for blasphemy. Jesus replies by asking the lawyer what the law says concerning eternal life. The lawyer correctly responds by quoting a standard found in several passages from the Old Testament. That standard is first of all found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, part of what's known as the Shema which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And then Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all of your soul. Then Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 3. You shall not listen to the Lord of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And then finally, Joshua chapter 22, verse 5. But take careful heed to do the commandments and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now understand this. Salvation has always been about faith. Specifically, a covenant relationship is established with God by faith, and that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Literally, the love expressed in the Old Testament scriptures constitutes a faith relationship with God. When the lawyer presses Jesus on the specifics of loving one's neighbor, Jesus chooses an illustration involving a demonstration of love for someone normally distasteful to a Jew, and that someone would be a Samaritan. Jesus makes a point in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and the apostle John repeats it again in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, and that point is this, that salvation in God by faith is accompanied with its own attributes. Love for one another is one of those attributes. So while the lawyer was looking for a clear proclamation of personal deity from Jesus, instead he received an explanation of the relationship between faith and love. Notice the parable that Jesus used in verses 30 through 36. He starts with an uncaring priest, then an uncaring Levite. By the way, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests per Numbers chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. These were two highly esteemed, respected classes of people with regard to their perceived relationship with God in Jesus' day. However, the Samaritans were a race of half-breed Jews despised by most Jews of Jesus' day. And as it turns out, Jesus' parable highlights the fruit of a relationship with God in the Samaritan and not the priest and not the Levite. You can see how this parable disrupts the we hate Samaritans paradigm of that day. In verses 38 to 42 of Luke chapter 10, we see that Martha gets a little aggravated with her sister Mary. Verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, this is the house of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. They're also seen in John chapter 11. Martha's doing all the work while Mary is sitting listening to the teachings of Jesus. Martha asks Jesus uh, for a little help here. She wants some intercession to get Mary to pitch in a hand, but to no avail. As a matter of fact, Mary and Martha are later seen at Simon the leper's house in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6-13, through 13, Mark 14, 3-9, and John 12, 1-11. That's just six days before his crucifixion. On that occasion, Martha served the meal... And Mary's contribution was breaking open some very expensive ointment with which she anointed the feet of Jesus, followed by wiping his feet with her hair. On that occasion, it was Judas Iscariot who complained about Mary's actions and the waste of the ointment. In Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, we get a lesson on heartfelt, persistent prayer. Verse 1. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, Though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now if you want to see the discussion that Jesus has on this very issue another place look at Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 34. Jesus dealt with these same issues there in Matthew chapter 6 and 7 but this passage is not part of that Sermon on the Mount. In order to get the full impact of what Jesus is teaching with his model prayer of Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 4 we need to see the contrast of Matthew chapter 6 verses 6 through 15. There's a link here you can click on that and go look at those notes. We see that in both passages what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But in the Matthew passage, given on a different occasion altogether, earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus there points out that prayer is to be from each individual's heart and not to be a series of vain repetitions similar to the way the Pharisees were accustomed to doing in public for the purpose of being seen. So this prayer actually has substance and action items for God. I mean, meat on the bone, so to speak. We see from Matthew that this prayer was not intended to be a recitation, but rather a model of how prayer is to be done. In Matthew's account, this was included as part of the entire message given that day. In Luke's passage here, one of Jesus' disciples asked for this lesson on prayer. In the process of answering the question, Jesus again refers to his comments given that day as part of the Sermon on the Mount. But he adds more detail here regarding persistence. In Luke 11, verses 5 through 13, Jesus deals with this concept of persistence in prayer. Persistence means, well, I guess it means the art of nagging. Of course, God knows what we'll ask for, and and he knows with what intensity and frequency we'll make our request. God's omniscient, of course he knows. He knows. Nonetheless, Jesus gives an example of persistence in this passage to illustrate that for a neighbor, one might meet a request just because that neighbor is persistent. What does persistence in prayer prove to God? Well, I'll tell you what it does. It gives us a look at ourselves and shows us how intent we are on God meeting our particular need. In this passage, we see Jesus teaching that God honors persistent prayer. We first of all see it with the illustration in verses 5 through 8. Then we see it in the way Jesus explains the concept of those verses in verses 9 through 13. Now take particular note of verses 9 through 11. It says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened." The Greek verb forms for ask, seek, and knock are all three present active imperatives. That present tense indicates a continuing action on the part of the one praying. Then, like a father, God wants to meet our needs. Now, another aspect of persistent prayer is fasting. I've provided some references to New Testament fasting here on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. I'm afraid you wouldn't absorb them by just listening, so I'd suggest that you... Click on the links and read the associated notes which each with each of the occasions. They start in Matthew all the way down to 2 Corinthians on the issue of fasting. Now, perhaps the best description regarding the purpose of fasting is seen in Isaiah chapter 58. Now, make no mistake about it. Uh, fasting is a New Testament concept as well. But we really get a basis for fasting in Isaiah chapter 58. It's difficult from these New Testament verses, these passages that I provided, to pull together a comprehensive doctrine on fasting, but it's obvious from all these references in the New Testament that the concept hasn't been invalidated under grace. It would appear that fasting is akin to persistence. Uh, I mean, let's face it uh, fasting adds a level of sincerity and urgency to our petitions before God. Incidentally, God knows how sincere we are, but fasting may very well be the key that helps us realize how importantly we regard our own petition. In other words, fasting demonstrates an intensity in prayer that may not be demonstrated perhaps any other way. Now, have you heard that uh, false doctrine, the evil genie theory about prayer? Well, Jesus addresses that in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Let's look at it. Verse 11. If a son asks for bread from Any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, how many times have you heard a Christian say, Watch out what you pray for, you might get it. Nearly everyone finds amusing the story of the man who finds a bottle from which emerges an evil genie granting three wishes. However, each time the man makes his wish, the evil genie takes advantage of the man's lack of specificity with regard to his request and turns the request into something sinister and very undesirable. Unfortunately, many Christians have somehow developed the notion that God answers prayer just like that fictitious evil genie. There is a teaching that a Christian might make an unwise request of God in prayer and receive it to his peril, just so God can teach him a lesson. Let me just say, that's outrageous. These verses teach that God does not answer prayers with provisions that are harmful to us. As a matter of fact, 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, those verses give us a clear direction on which prayers God will answer when he says this, now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, then we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, that's pretty clear. God answers prayers that are according to his will. Incidentally, the direction for praying according to his will well, that comes from the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promises here in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.